Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. In this series, Women in Technology and Innovation, we are shining a spotlight on the remarkable female entrepreneurs, business leaders, and engineers who are changing the world through industry and innovation. I'm your host, Samantha Walravens. In this episode on female founders, I will sit down with Dawoon Kang, the co-founder and chief dating officer of Coffee Meets Bagel. We'll discuss her entrepreneurial journey, the challenges she's faced growing and leading her business, and what it takes to be a technology founder today. So just a brief background, uh, Dawoon started Coffee Meets Bagel uh, in 2012 with her two sisters. And it launched in New York City, and then it quickly moved to San Francisco and other cities around the country, and now it's global. Uh, yep. Prior to starting the company, she worked in finance and strategy for J.P. Morgan and for Avon. She has an MBA from Stanford Business School and an undergrad degree from the University of Pennsylvania. So I guess I have to start here. I have to ask you about that appearance on Shark Tank because you guys turned down a $30 million offer from Mark Cuban. What was it like being in the Shark Tank and why the heck did you ever turn down that kind of money? <laughs> so, so first of all, you know, you and I were talking, Sam, yesterday about what it was like to be in the tank. Of course, it's such a memorable experience. And also, it was a very nerve wracking experience, right? Like you're you're in there, like, you know, so many eyeballs. It's not just the sharks, but there's so many people circling around you because it is a TV production. And then knowing that, you know, eventually this is going to be aired in whatever format and shape, whatever you you say, you, you already signed a form, like whatever you say, you're signing a release. Um, and you know that it's going to be aired to millions and millions of people, not in just the U.S., but globally. And so, yeah, I remember not getting any sleep, like actually the, the night before. Anyway, so going back to your question, what, what was it like? It was really thrilling to get that question asked from Mark Cuban, who's a very, very savvy tech investor, actually, uh, was uh, and to kind of have him benchmark us at $30 million. It was still a very early stage of our Coffee Meets Bagels history. It, it was very validating for us. You, you know, we gained a lot of conviction and confidence around what we were doing and the idea that we were pursuing and the market attractiveness. And, you know, why did we turn down, you know, $30 million? Like, well, it was very unexpected, but we never got on the show to actually sell. Like we had literally just started this journey and we, we started with the big vision, of course, uh, of being a really big disruptor in this space. And, and then, you know, we're still, you know, to this day working towards that vision. If there's anyone out there who is looking for love and long-term relationship, we don't want to leave that to a chance. We want to make sure that everyone is able to access that and not just for lucky few who stumble upon that. And we're continuing to kind of realize that vision, which is why we didn't sell. Got it. Got it. So tell me about you. You worked in finance. You worked for Avon. We have a business degree. Why did you just decide to leave the more stable, secure world of finance and business and go into the startup world, which is so high risk, as we know? Yeah, I get asked that question quite a bit. And for me, actually, it was very black and white, intuitive decision. You know, I, I got into finance because at the time, after I graduated from business school, originally, actually, what I really wanted to do was to work in the, the space of economic development. 
um, doing microfinance type of work, type of work. And that actually was the reason why I went to JP Morgan, because while in business school, I talked to a lot of friends who were in the international development space. And I was told that it's much better to actually get into that space after having some private sector finance experience. And so that wasn't like my ultimate goal. Like I really went in there to, to JP Morgan to eventually move myself into the microfinance kind of field. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Like I think finance is a very intellectually stimulating field. Like you get to work with a bunch of smart people, very fast paced. Um, you get to learn about a ton of different industries. So it was really fun, but there was always a part of me that felt like something was missing. Like in Korea, and I'm, I'm from, from Korea, and there's an expression called like, you know, you're 98% happy, but there's like 2% missing in your life. And, and you kind of notice that and you're aware of that. And I always was aware that like, this is a very satisfying job and I'm getting paid so well, it's very comfortable, but something seems to be missing. And so um, when my sister, uh, you know, my twin sister actually brought up the idea of like, hey, I think it's right time for us to actually really tackle this idea of starting a company that we talked about since we were very little. Um, and, you know, I, I knew like instantly that if I actually don't take an action, then, you know, years later, I'm going to regret it. And so looking at from that framework, regret minimization model, right? Like you want to make choices in your life that actually really minimizes um, the, the amount of regret that you're going to have on your, when you're, you know, in your deathbed. And this is, I actually took that from Jeff Bezos um, of Amazon. Um, and so when I kind of looked at from that framework, it was a very intuitively easy decision. So when you and your sisters were discussing, you know, growing up, discussing starting a business together someday, what, um, what were your thoughts on the type of business? And then why did you decide on, on an online dating app, which is such a heavily saturated mm -hmm. space, right? There's, so there's Tinder, there's Bumble, there's Hinge, there's Match. So why did you decide on this type of business? Right. Uh, when we were growing up, uh, thinking that eventually we're going to work on something together. So my dad was an entrepreneur and he started his company with his brother. So we kind of just kind of watched. Um, that was like the thing that we were we watched. And in our mind, it was very natural that the three of us would get together to start a company. We didn't really have a ton of ideas that we rolled around. Like we knew that we wanted to start a company together eventually, but it wasn't like there was like a feel that we were like, let's, what, how about this? What about that? Like we didn't grow up discussing those, the specifics. And it was only when we decided that it was the right time for us that we started looking, okay, so what would, what are some ideas that we would be excited about working on? And instantly we knew that it was going to be in the B2C space, so direct to consumer, not B2B. Uh, because it was important for us that we are able to see the impact uh, that we were making to the individual customers in their lives. So that was something that we knew was like very important. And of course, uh, we want to make it such that it's it's a very positive and meaningful difference. So we only really had that category. And with Dell and we started looking and dating, it wasn't something that we thought about from from the very beginning, but it just kept coming up as a very common problem, like we were in our late twenties, we were some of, like some of us were dating, some of us were in a relationship. Um, so we kind of knew firsthand that it's not, it's dating just feels really hard. And um, it's a problem that just kept coming up over and over again among our friends. And so that's kind of what we, uh, what drew us initially to take a look at the market. 
it, we noticed that it was a very, it, it is competitive, but it is a growing market. And we also saw a white space um, in this, in, 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 even in this like, sea of like red ocean, you could say, um, which is that there is a lack of product that really focuses on quality um, uh, over quantity. Like most of the dating services were just all about giving you as many options as possible, which typically doesn't really appeal to women and creates this very suboptimal dynamic for everyone where um, guys are like frustrated because they don't hear back from um, the whoever they actually try to uh, reach out to. And then women are frustrated because they're overwhelmed with so many messages that are coming in. And so um, we said, hey, you know, let's really build a brand and a product experience that focuses on quality and safety because uh, that, that is something that is like really lacking. And that was kind of the birth of Coffee Meets Bagel. Interesting. Well, we talked about how entrepreneurs, there's a quote, entrepreneurs don't start businesses, they solve problems. So that was sort of your, the problem that you were solving is the quality and the safety. Coffee Meets Bagel has one of the most highly educated demographics among its members and participants. So the people who are taking part of, you know, uh, your users are coming from schools like Stanford, UCLA, Harvard, Columbia, Penn. Why is this? Is this how you marketed it? Or why do you, how do you get these types of people? Uh, I think there are two reasons. So we primarily grow by word of mouth um, organically. And of course, when you first start, you have to be scrappy and you just start with your friends first, right? And so it just kind of started with my friends and why well, I went to one of those schools. And so then like, as they actually enjoy the experience, they invite more of their friends and they, you know, we kind of tend to circle around the same similar social circle. So uh, that's part of the reasons word of mouth, but you know, eventually that doesn't scale, right? It's not like now we have millions of users, but we can't have only very specific niche group of people and be able to be, uh, be a global company that can actually uh, create meaningful difference to everyone. And so that, that's where our algorithm comes in, right? And so the whole model is quality versus quantity. So uh, we have to put a ton of emphasis and investment on our algorithm such that even if there's gazillion types of people on the platform, to you, the experience feels very catered. And so if you are somebody who value education and certain type of education, um, then we want to actually only try our best to show you with people who have that kind of education that you're looking for. So that's kind of your experience, um, no matter how big we get and you know how, how different types of people that we actually um, attract, your experience should remain uniquely yours and you know hopefully our algorithm the idea is that our algorithm will figure out what's important to you and show people who have those qualities that are important to you well that brings up another question from a student actually about implicit bias and how you know the coffee meets bagel algorithm matches people together and obviously you're looking for a certain types when you're on the dating app, you're looking for a certain type of person and you have certain criteria, but how do you mitigate or minimize the unconscious bias that, yeah. that, that, that goes into the dating app and the, the technology behind it? You know, when you first join, we don't have any data about you, right? But other than the ones that you put in, but we don't actually have any data of history of the type of people that you're liking and not liking. And so it's gonna have to take a guess 
based on probability of similar type of people who actually have signed up for a coffee meets bagel prior to you. And it's taking a guess at who the type of person that you might like and also who's going to like you back, right? It's always a two-sided thing. And what it's actually trying to do is maximize for connection rate. And so in doing that, it's, it's not the model is biased, but because it's going by statistics and historical data um, and not the unique personal data that you start displaying, I think it tends to kind of go with the whatever is empirically the most probable. And then eventually, as it collects more data about you, and so the more contradictory choices that you make, that you're training the algorithm to learn your unique preference so that it doesn't actually fall in, if it doesn't fall into the, you know, whatever probability that it was exposed to before, it can actually learn that and make conscious choice as to who they should be showing you. So this past year has been a crazy, unprecedented year of stay at home, shelter in place. How has COVID and the pandemic affected business at Coffee Meets Bagel? Yeah, you know, 2020 was a tough year, I think, for a lot of us. Um, I, I think in two folds, like, you see such a dramatic change in the business metrics. In March, I remember when the lockdown first started happening in the U.S. We're global, but 70% of our businesses come from U.S. And so anything that happens in the U.S. is the thing that we can feel the most distinctively. And so in March, when, when the lockdown happened here, uh, immediately, we saw a 25 to 30% drop in our user sign up and revenue. Like people who are people who are using the app already were more engaged, but they were not spending money, they were spending less. And people who were not using dating apps like CMB, like new users became disinterested in signing up. Why? Well, because we're worried about our health. We're worried about our job. And when we have like a fundamental um, insecurity is like a threat that is so foundational to our life, we're not going to worry about optional things, right? Like dating. And so very understandably, we took a really big hit on, on our business, which we of course had to adopt to. And then of course, there is the mental stress of our individual employees, right? So, okay, so the, the business environment is changing. So of course, we have to work harder to respond to this situation, yet our employees are also dealing with their own lives of having to worry about their children, having to worry about themselves, having to worry about whatever. And so the mental stress is actually doubled, right? And we're asking them to work harder. Of course, this is something that all businesses had to deal with, so, but it was really challenging. It was really challenging. And uh, in moments, um, there were a lot of moments of panics and sleepless nights, but I think what we, what I've concluded and, you know, with my leadership team is that one, like, don't just react, right? You can't just be reacting uh, because of the things that are happening. You need to inform yourself as to um, what is going on. So immediately what we started doing is actually talk to, I organized like a bunch of focus groups throughout the country and got on myself to talk to our daters about what is it, what is, what is going on in their lives? Like, what is it like to be dating right now? Are you, are you even thinking about dating? What can you actually, what do you want Coffee Meets Bagel to be able to do? And from those research, we kind of found our um, a new roadmap to be able to respond effectively to the situation. So I want to go back to the entrepreneurial mindset, because I find it really fascinating. You can actually have that sort of mindset, not just in the startup world, but in 
you know, any job that you do in your personal and professional life, tell me about what that means to you and what, and what are the personality traits that make for a good entrepreneur if there are such traits? Yeah, I think entrepreneur, to me, entrepreneurship is really about half or even more of entrepreneurship is really about engaging in a mental jujitsu almost with yourself. I think for any of us who try to do something different or big or difficult, it doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how talented you are, doesn't matter how much success you've had in the past, you will eventually run into obstacles that's going to feel discouraging. You will get so many no's eventually. You will get, you're going to run into something that feels like a failure, that is like a guarantee path because you're just by virtue of being an entrepreneur, you're doing something that's never been done before. It's a very difficult thing. And so you have to be able to accept that that's normal and reality. And it's, it's happening because you're trying something hard and not take that personally as a lack of whatever on your side and part, make it kind of about you and, you know, how, I don't know, untalented you are. So you have to really just be able to separate and distinguish yourself from that um, and not make any meaning out of that, right? About yourself and have the energy to keep moving, keep moving in the face of the nose, keep moving in the face of the obstacles, keep moving in the face of failures. And then just like you repeat, like that there's like, okay, you go through one thing and then there's going to be another thing. There's going to be another thing. Like it never ends, right? It never ends. It's, it's, you think that it's going to end all oh, after my first fundraising, oh, after I hire this person, after we do this product launch, but it actually is, it never ends. And it actually gets more, as, as your company gets bigger, you're, you have more investors, you have more employees, you have more customers, you're accountable to the pressure actually gets even larger, right? It's a matter of constantly training yourself and reminding yourself, which, which is like very intuitively against the human nature. If there's something threatening, our human nature is to basically fly, right? Like just stop. Like this isn't, this doesn't feel good. So it's, it's like, I need to protect myself. That is a human nature. So it's really about going against the human nature, which is why training yourself mentally um, on a daily basis is so important to entrepreneurship. And this is why I think quality like persistence, which I, I don't think gets talked about a ton in the entrepreneurship space, is one of the most critical element to being successful as an entrepreneur for the reason that I said it, because it's going to be a constant battle of you getting kind of knocked out and bouncing back. And resilience, right? Mm-hmm. up and going on. So Winston Churchill has a great quote. He said that success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. (laughs) And I love that because it's so true. But I want to ask you about what failures you've experienced on your path to success. Oh my God, so many, right? Even, even, I mean, even last year, for example, like we were gearing up, there were so many plans that we actually had about 2020, which all kind of just went out the window uh, because of COVID. Um, so there's external circumstances that's going to happen that's going to throw you off. And we had to start over with so much uncertainty. And, and like, that was scary, right? And and like, okay, well, there were nights I was like, I don't know how to, how to do this. I, I want to give up. And so you have to bounce back up from that. And you also have to be a good demonstrator, like a leader who actually, you know, 
influence other people to inspire other people to do the same, right? I think COVID is a really good example of uh, the setback that we had to actually bounce back from. You know, looking back when I was in college, I think it's also easy to feel like, again, like personalized things like, okay, I'm, I'm experiencing this because, you know, maybe I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough or whatever. Like if you, if I were like Jeff Bezos, I wouldn't be actually experiencing this, right? If I were, Mark, you know, whoever else like that you admire. But I, I can t- tell you like with 100% conviction, no matter who you are talking about, they have experienced this before because they're all up to big things. And they also had to run through many, many training, self-training, probably themselves, almost self-talking. You know, I'm sure there were days when they got up and it's like, I don't, I don't think I can do this. And then you have to like literally tell yourself, like looking yourself in the mirror and say, no, you can do this, right? You can figure this out. Maybe not today, but you will be able to figure this out. Like you literally have to self-talk. And it's like, there is no exception. Like no matter how smart you are, whatever else, like everyone has to do that eventually because you will run into something that you're not going to be able to solve right away easily. Your email signature says courage over comfort, which I love. And Mm -hmm. Reshma Sojani, the founder of Girls Who Code, wrote a book called Bravery Over Perfection. Choose bravery, not perfection. So I just think that's so interesting because it's true. We all suffer from this thing called imposter syndrome, especially really highly motivated, ambitious, smart individuals. So tell me about your courage over comfort. What does that mean to you? Yeah, that quote is actually from Brene Brown, um, who is a very you know famous researcher. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with her on the, on the topic of vulnerability. What I love about that, and it's a good reminder, right? Because there are, when you feel, again, like it's just human nature, when you feel not comfortable, when you feel like, yeah, you're threatened, you just want to stop, right? Why, why would you go on? Because it's like threatening to, if you actually had done that like a bajillion years ago when we were actually, you know, living in the wild, like you would be bitten by a tiger, right? And die. And so that's not the type of threat that we deal with, like the physical danger, but, you know, our body doesn't really know the difference, right? Like the mental mental stress can really come across as a threat to our life. So it's of course natural for us to want to stop. And um, there are many days, the reason why I actually include that in my signature is because there are many days I just wanna feel comfortable, like feel good. And um, I have to remind myself like, no, I'm gonna choose courage over comfort because eventually in the long run, that's what's going to give me a life that's really happy and fulfilling for me. And so, you know, if I choose comfort now, maybe in the short term, I'm going to feel good, but it's a decision that I'm most likely going to regret later. But, you know, in the moment, it it helps to be reminded of that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the data around the startup world and female founders. So if you look at the data around women entrepreneurs, it's not good in the tech Mm -hmm. world. Uh, Mm -hmm. Less than 20% of technology startups are founded by women. Women-led startups receive less than 3% of the venture capital pie that's invested every year in startups. And over the past year, interestingly, during COVID, venture capital funding to women dropped significantly. The funding to male founders held steady. Mm. So what, what's going on with these numbers? Why are there still so few women entrepreneurs in the tech world? And why do they get so little, even with all the, there's so many funds that have started up to that focus on minority and women-led companies, why is the, the venture funding not going to these women founders? 
Well, first of all, there's just a lot less of us, right? There are a lot less of us. Even um, e even the trend has been very positive and there are a lot more of us than ever before. We're still the minorities here. And so I think just virtue of just few, just uh, like just mathematically, you know, so of course there's less female entrepreneurs, of course there's going to be less funding. I think the other thing is, and of, this is my personal opinion. I don't know the an like exact answer. Um, so just being here in the, in the space observing there's less entrepreneurs, uh, less female entrepreneurs. So there's a little bit of lopsidedness there, but where I see the, uh, the real lopsidedness is in the funding space. And so when you look at the number of partners, female partners in the VC category, where they control the money, the lopsidedness is even bigger. I don't, I don't know, the, uh, I can't quote the exact number, but there's just like such few female partners who control the money, who makes the ultimate decision as to where the fund goes. And so much of startup investment decision is not based on data really, because when you're first starting, you don't have much data, right? And so a lot of VCs end up having to make intuitive decision as to what feels like a good investment, what feels like is going to be the unicorn and, and bet on entrepreneurs who feel like from a very you know, few data points, not that the actual record, but like gut feeling wise. So you have to kind of make a bet on the entrepreneur based on those feel. And when you are, you know, of course, okay, again, human nature, like we are all biased, right? We, we are all biased and we tend to connect better with people who look and feel and talk and, you know, like us. And so there is that. So you, you probably are statistically speaking, it's going to be harder, right, to connect with people who don't look and feel whatever like you. And also a lot of problems that we bring, like Coffee Meets Bagel is a good example. Like we went in with saying like, okay, this is a problem that a lot of female daters uh, experience. You know, a lot of a lot of investors didn't get that at all. Well, why? Because they're, they're not dating from female body, right? And so it was harder for us to get them to understand that this is a real problem. And, and so... That's a good example. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, we work on problems that we personally experience or that we observe or we, we, we resonate, it, it resonates a lot with us. And if it doesn't resonate with the investor base, of course, it's going to be harder for you to raise money. So I think there definitely is that at play here. I do want to say though, even though all these stats feel, but could feel very discouraging, it is so, if you actually also look at data points and focus on data points that are encouraging, like there are so many of that out there as well. Like the, um, I didn't know about, I actually didn't know about the COVID funding, but um, over the years, maybe exception of last year, like the number of invest, investments that has been going to female founders have been growing, even the size of the raise among female founders actually have been, have been growing. So there are a lot of positive um, trends. And, you know, I think I can, you know, confidently say that there, even though it's not, it's, it's not equal, it's not easy, there hasn't been a better time for us, for female founders to actually be here and raise money. And so, you know, there are a lot of positive signs as well, which is really encouraging. Let's talk a little bit more about fundraising. So after your Shark Tank appearance, and 2015, I think it was a month later, you announced a $7.8 million Series A financing. Mm -hmm. And then three years later, in 2018, you raised $12 million in a Series B. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the process of raising capital and what 
any tips or tricks you can offer us? Yeah. As far as like what, what worked for you? What didn't work? Yeah. And one thing before I get into that, because fundraising is a very important job of a CEO and a founder, like, you know, other people probably who's an expert in some, some areas, marketing or whatever can do those for you, but only you can fundraise as a CEO. Your like number one job is to make sure that there's funding and your company doesn't run out of money. And so it is a very important part of founder. One thing that I actually kind of wish I knew and was cognizant of going in before fundraising is that fundraising is optional. Like I think there is a tendency for just because of how Silicon Valley runs, you know, more money that we raise, the better it is, but that necessarily isn't the case, right? There's like the more money you raise, you're going to be more diluted. And do you actually really have to fundraise? Like, is that the path that you want to take? I think, I think it's very important to actually think about that as a founder, Um, you're giving up control. Like there's a lot of consequences that come with fundraising, right? And so, you know, I just want to make sure those of us who are interested in taking this path doesn't feel like this is like the only thing that we, only path that we have and don't feel pressure to fundraise just because that's kind of like, seems like what whatever else other people are doing. Like make sure that you understand the full consequence of that choice and also know what other options are out there. You know, I definitely kind of went in thinking that it's just like something that I just have to do. I didn't really think about, oh, is this this something that like, what does it mean to actually fundraise? Fortunately for me, um, because Coffee Meets Bagel is a marketplace business, which means our product doesn't work actually if we don't have enough user base. And so we have this cold start problem that we have to get over. It's in in order to get over that, we we did need funding. You, You can't have a decent product unless you have a decent number of user base. So for marketplace categories like that, fundraising is often a good, good path. But anyway, so I just wanted to mention that. So tips and things, making sure that you actually are very selective about who you talk to. So it's kind of like dating, right? It's what we always joke around. Like the goal isn't to be liked by everyone. Like, you know, I, I, whenever I talk to daters, we really focus on like, how do I get liked? Well, like you don't want to be liked by everyone. In fact, that's, it's actually bad and waste of your time and energy to be liked by everyone. You want to be only liked by people you care, like um, people who you are actually going to be excited about getting investment from, people who actually know your space, people who can contribute. And so do a lot of research around who that is and what the, what the fund is um, so that you don't actually end up wasting a lot of time barking at the wrong tree. So that's one. And then the second thing is practice makes it perfect. Like you will get a no, like you know, earlier, what I said, this, this fundraising is one area where your, your mindset is going to be tested like major time. And so, you, um, so just go, go in knowing that, right? Like going, knowing that it, it is very normal to get a no and don't make it personal. Don't make it about you. Just go like get feedback and, you know, think about what, what you could have done differently. It could have been the wrong person, Right. It couldn't, it, it, you could have done the same thing to say the same exact thing to another person. It could have worked. And so, you know, you kind of just have to test it, right? So you, you, like approach it with an experimental mindset with the focus on learning and making sure that each time you pitch, there is something that you learn and that you can apply for the pitch that you're going to come do next. That's good advice. You have a podcast where you interview experts on relationship experts and you offer dating advice. So what's the best piece of advice you've been given recently and what tips can you offer us during on, on dating during COVID? 
Yeah, this isn't this isn't something that came out recently on my say uh, on my podcast, but like a number one dating rule that I really really want everyone, especially you know young folks who are new to dating, to really understand. Like whenever I talk to daters, and I was dater myself too, right? I'm in a relationship now, but I actually used coffee meets bagel for many many years. I went hundreds and hundreds of first dates like myself. I know exactly what it is to be in, in in that in that shoes, and like really, what I was really concerned a lot about when I was dating is like, how do I get liked more? Right? How do I get the other person to like me? And I think we tend to. It's very easy to focus on that. But what I realized over time, studying so much about dating and relationships, and talking to a lot of people, is that the key to actually getting finding that loving relationship that you want. It's to learn how to be loving to other people first, and when you are loving to other people, you will be loved. You know, I, there's a um, I don't know who I actually heard this from, but we were talking about leadership. Somebody was talking about leadership on a podcast, and I heard him say something like, you know, if you want to if you want to lead, be willing to be led. If you want to be influential, then be willing to be influenced. Right? If you want to be respected, then give respect. If you want to be understood, then you have to be understanding first. And it's the same thing. If you want to be loved, you have to learn how to be loving, and not just to people you're interested in, but everyone. Like every date that you get, even if you show up and you're like, "This is not the person that like I remember." I don't really feel romantically anything whatsoever. Practice how to be loving to that person, and that could be anything, right? Like being really fully present, asking questions, being really interested. Whatever loving means to you, practice doing that. And if you can actually be loving to anyone, when that one person shows up that you really, really like, you're gonna have so much loving energy. That's what's gonna get them to actually love you. And so that's like one thing that I really emphasize. And it's it's a daily practice. Like being loving is a daily practice. You don't even actually have to do it only in dating. You can do it with your friends, family, anyone. I love that. So thank you so much, Daewoon, for this incredible um, discussion. I've learned so much. Oh, great! <laughs> about online dating, about being an entrepreneur. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at Nasdaq Center podcast. The Lehigh at Nasdaq Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the Nasdaq Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire. The next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram. We are at Lehigh Nasdaq Center. If you enjoyed what you learned about what it takes to go from an idea to a successful business with Daewoon Kang, remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Next week, I will speak with Kelly Steckelberg, the CFO of Zoom, about her experience leading one of the most ubiquitous communication platforms today.